And Lord, we ask for eyes to see, as Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, that you'd open the eyes of our heart to see and know the blessings that we have in Christ. That we would know that every blessing already has been given to us in him. Cause us to walk in your son. Cause us to walk depending upon the sacrifice he made and the grace that he's pouring out upon us. Lord, let us not turn to ourselves. I pray that there would be no pride and no dependence upon our own abilities here. That tonight, Father, those things would fall. And that we would find that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So build our house on that rock, I pray. As we look for our home away from home. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. We're in Jeremiah chapter 25 tonight. Jeremiah 25 through 29. As we make our way chunk by chunk through Jeremiah. So we're covering 25 to 29. I'm going to read a passage from 29 um, as you who read through this know, 29 is the highlight chapter. Jeremiah suddenly becomes optimistic in the midst of all this despair and discouragement that we've been hearing from him. He has this word of optimism, so it's good. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is what has happened is Jerusalem was indeed besieged by the Babylonians, 598 BC. Um, this was the first wave of exile. This is the one where Babylon surrounded them, and they took the elite out of Jerusalem, and they taxed the Jews severely. And in this wave of exiles, so some stayed in Jerusalem. The temple was not destroyed. The city was not destroyed. Everything was left intact, but they took a bunch of Jews from Jerusalem and took them out to Babylon, the best of the best. And Daniel, our character in the book of Daniel, was amongst this first wave of exiles. So we're about 598 BC, 586 so a little over 10 years from now is when they come back because Jerusalem rebels against Babylon and they then teach them a lesson and the city is destroyed and the temple is destroyed. So that's where we are. There are people in Jerusalem and there are people in Babylon. And Jeremiah from Jerusalem is writing a letter to the people in Babylon. Okay? So it continues. Verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah... And the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is what my letter said, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. 
Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply, therefore, and do not decrease. But, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which you went into exile. So we saw a video about the dangers of the prosperity gospel. And it's not unusual for people that promote such teachings to take you to Jeremiah 29, 11, Because Jeremiah is making this promise of God's got a future and a hope for you and he's going to give you, restore your fortunes and there's a plan of welfare and they will, they'll talk about prosperity and, and God's got this magnificent plan for you and it's, you're going to get the things you wanted and the people you want and it's all there for you and they, they go to passages like this. But tonight we're going to look at what God is saying to the exiles through Jeremiah, through this letter, through Jeremiah 29, 11, in context. Um, we're going to see the message that he has for them is actually a balanced message. And there's a lot of false teachings in the world, of course. And basically what they all do is they exaggerate. They, they choose an extreme and they limit the rest of the system. So that they're imbalanced. It's not that they're completely wrong. They're merely imbalanced. They, they overemphasize a section of truth and completely neglect and limit the other section of truth. And that often leads you to crazy theologies and crazy teachings and crazy living. And that's one thing that prosperity gospel does do. Um, we're going to see that Jeremiah similarly is in a context where he, in the chapters before 29, is face-to-face -face with the prophets of Israel and himself. The ones who are speaking on their own behalf, and Jeremiah who's speaking on God's behalf. And their messages contradict, they conflict. And there's sort of this scene that we have 
between Jeremiah and this one named prophet named uh, uh, Hananiah. And they go at it and they have their differences. What's God going to do in the future? (laughs) Jeremiah says one thing and Hananiah says another. And they can't seem to agree about God's plan for Israel. And now you can imagine this, right? We thought we were invisible, yet the Babylonians came and they took some of us away. What's going to happen now to our future? Can you just hear it? One side of prophets stand up and says, nothing's going to happen. The temple's still here. God will fight for us. And those people were just sinners. That's why they went off. God will prosper us. He'll restore us. We'll be bigger than ever before. And then he got the other prophets who are over here going, oh my gosh, we never thought this would happen. Doom and gloom. We're done. We're toast. There's, this is the end of the world as we know it. And they're prophesying that. And they're telling everybody to, you know, purchase everything you've ever wanted because the world's going to end. And so get, you know, for, quit your jobs and go on the golf course. Have that life that you wanted, whatever. So you can imagine the two reactions, right? Devastation has come. One side says, this is nothing for God. He's going to prosper us. And then the other side says, we're toast. We can't stand before God. So there's no hope. And then there's so much hope. It's like, prosper us, please. So, okay, a walk through here. Um, Chapter 26, chapter 25, there's this, a lot of prophesying against the nations. He says, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. That sets up what we're about to talk about now. Chapter 26, we see that Jeremiah is preaching in the temple. He's threatened with death. They don't like his message. And um, there's this whole debate about what should we do with Jeremiah And eventually people stand up for him and he lives. And then there's this parenthetical section. When you read it, you're probably like, what was this in here for? Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. uh, There's this other prophet who says the same things Jeremiah says, but he gets killed. And the point of that, you're like, why is that? Who is this guy? He plays no part in the story. The point of that is to show that Jeremiah's protection was unusual. That God is on his side protecting him. Like God said, when he called him in chapter 1, remember, I am going to be with you. It was the imagery of the castle. Jeremiah, be confident in your call because God is going to be a castle for you. And we see that coming to pass. In chapter 27, um, Jeremiah walks around with a yoke on his neck, like the animals wear, and it was the image of work. You're working for something that's driving you and controlling you. And he's saying, this is the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he's wearing it, and he's calling people to come under the yoke, the authority of the Babylonians. Serve them. Don't fight against them. And we talked about that last week, didn't we? The importance of surrender being more life-giving than the whole survival mentality. I'm going to fight people around me and just try to survive for myself. And Jeremiah is reiterating these words. And he's saying, don't live for survival and for yourself. God has already judged what's going to happen. So choose the route of surrender that through this death, you're going to live. And so he's wearing the yoke and he's calling people a very graphic image of saying, this is what we need to look like. We need to be under the Babylonians. Give way to them. Sounds like sedition, doesn't it? Who's paying you to say that? This is why Jeremiah got in a lot of trouble. And so he's saying that um, chapter 28 you see the false prophet, Hananiah. And he comes up to Jeremiah. And 28 verse 2, he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I also will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. He was one of the kings, uh, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Babylon. Um, He's going to break the yoke of Babylon. So Hananiah stands up. So meanwhile, you know, Jeremiah is walking around with the yoke, right? Submit to the Babylonians, submit to the Babylonians. Hananiah comes around and says, okay, so we lost some people to Babylon. They're over there. Thus says Lord, in two years, just two years, they're all coming back. It's all going to be over. God's going to prosper us and restore us. And everything is going to be just like normal. So don't worry about it, people. Just, just sit tight for two years and you're coming back. And he and Jeremiah have this confrontation and... Um, Jeremiah says, no, it's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. They're going to be there for a long time. They need to settle down and make life there. And Hananiah's like, no, they're not. God's going to deliver them. And they go back and forth on this. And Hananiah eventually takes the yoke from off Jeremiah's neck and breaks it and says, boom. See, God broke the yoke of the Babylonians. We're going to be free in two years. And Jeremiah comes back later and tells Hananiah, the yoke of wood that you broke, God has made into a yoke of iron. So that was his comeback. <laughs> and so that was their little debacle. So we see what this paints for us is the scene of there's this, um, if you want to call it theological tension for those left in Israel and those in Babylon. And they're all, they're, they're squabbling and debating about what is our future look like? Either God is going to prosper us now and we're going to come back Or he is punishing us and we're in this for the long haul. What was the most popular message? Ah, God's bigger than Babylonians. We're going to come back really soon, aren't we? So this is the um, approaches that are happening. Now, I see in this two temptations for the people that we see today in our experience. Um, Hananiah preaches a limited message. It's, it's right. His message is right. God will restore us. But he's missing a big part of what the exiles need to hear, what Jerusalem needs to hear. Uh, the other people, the doom and gloom prophets, it's not going to restore us. Might as well make Babel on your home. We're done. They're right too. God is destroying them. They do need to make Babel on their new home. But see, they've also limited their preaching to one side of the coin. Jeremiah steps into the middle and says, well, both of you are kind of right. God is going to restore us. He's going to bring us back home. There's hope but it's not going to be as instant as you want it to be. So the doom and gloom prophets are right too. Make yourself at home in Babylon, but it's not going to be your home home. Make it your home away from home. So Jeremiah takes this balanced side. Um, But so now, so that's Jeremiah in the middle. We got the two extreme messages that are going out there, right? So you've got one the doom and gloom prophets would be uh, like your present-day hedonists. 
We don't see any hope in the future. We live for the present. So we are going to invest all of our lives on pleasure right now. And then you've got your escapism. So hedonism over there, living all for the present because there's no hope for the future. So we got to make everything, we need to make this world our home today, right here, right now. Yes, there's pain and things are hard, but we need to enjoy pleasure now, here. So we live for the present and there is no hope for the future. And then the escapism, it's almost the other side of the coin. And it says, there is pain and life is hard and this world is not the answer. We can't make this world our home. We live for something else. And so we're going to live in the future and we're going to cast all of our hope in the future and there's nothing for the present. And so we kind of check out of the present and we say, we're just going to sit here until God delivers us. And so you can, then there's Jeremiah. So you've got the hedonism, and it's saying loudly, like some of the prophets, doom and gloom for the future, make home here. Live for now. And you got the escapism view. Um, we cannot make our home here. It's all about the future. That is our hope. Our hope, our hope, our hope is the future. So we live in the future. We don't live in the present. We live in the future. Okay. So then Jeremiah sort of comes in the middle. So what, is, what does it mean to be a prophet of God? See, we hear these other prophets and they're saying their messages and they say their messages today. But then there's Jeremiah, and according to scripture, he is the true prophet. These are the false prophets. He's the true prophet. What is, what is it about his message? What is, what is prophecy supposed to be? It, it would seem as I read the prophets that the gift that God gives to a prophet, the gift of prophecy is all about delivering the right words for the right time a difference right a teacher can deliver right words irrelevant of time but he's always delivering right words he's trying to instruct people on that but a prophet delivers the right words for the right time and see there's a difference here because there are times when there is one way to say something and there are times when there's another way to say something um miss linda huffman at the lake road christian school will tell you when you teach one of the classes down at the school, that there is a time for certain ways of teaching the students. Some days they come in and you don't know what they ate at lunch. You have no idea what, the, what they're passing out in those, in those lunches and what their moms are packing. And they come in and you're thinking, what is in the air? What are they breathing? What is going on? And they're like, they're just eating pencils and eating paper and doing everything but writing their names and their assignments on it. You're like, oh my goodness. And Linda will teach you that there is a right word for a right time. And there's, you can't always just go into your routine and be like, listen up kids and blah, 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 and spill out knowledge and expect them to get. Sometimes they need that like arts and craft type of lesson. They need the hands-on. They need, 
there's just different times for different things. And the prophet is a person who's so immersed in God and in the present that he knows the right words for the people in that situation. And so Jeremiah knows the delicate balance of what the people need for that moment. He knows that the truth he speaks can't always sound the exact same. It's the same truth, but sometimes there's a people that needs to hear it in a certain manner, in a certain approach, a certain method of communication. Just like with water, it's composed of H2O, right? I'm not, I, I learned that much in chemistry. H2O. Now, this H2O formula can take many forms and shapes. If you're going to play a hockey game, you don't want water as vapor. You don't want water as liquid. You want water as frozen ice. Right? Now, that's what you skate on. That's what the puck will slide on. That's how you, the players don't drown. It's how the whole thing works. Now, you could throw water out on the rink and watch them wade through waist-deep water and think they're, you know, this turns into water polo all of a sudden, and it's not hockey anymore. But look, you can throw that water in there. It's still H2O, but it's not the right thing for the right time. It's true. It is water. But putting ice out is the right thing for the right time, right? And that's still water. Um, so if you go in a sauna, you don't want boiling water filling that room. You will fry, you will die, but you do want vaporous hot water to make that sauna do what it's supposed to do. So all that to say, Jeremiah has the right, he's got the message. He has the H2O, but it's a matter of finding the form and the approach and what the people need. And that's a prophet, the right words at the right time. And unfortunately, there are always, there is always a crowd of people who misunderstand prophets like Jeremiah because they can't see the H2O and they squabble about the form and the mass that is there, right? We don't want ice. That's a little too cold for us. We want something more drinkable, something more palatable. And that's so often where prophets are misunderstood and people come against them. In chapter 26, this is where we saw a lot of opposition against Jeremiah. And they, uh, they're against him for the message he said in the temple. And When you read the chapter, what you see is that never do the people who are griping about Jeremiah's message complain that his message is false. They never say he's worthy of death because he speaks false words. They want to kill him because he speaks inappropriate words for their ears. They're looking for liquid and they're getting ice. And that's why they want to kill him. And so we need to be careful not to be too quick to persecute God's prophets just because you were looking for water and they gave you ice. It is still H2O. We need to understand the right words at the right time. And Jeremiah here, again, they never say he was 
false or wrong. They just didn't want him. (laughs) Something struck a funny part inside them, and they said, whoa, don't go there. Um... That's, that's, the, that's the situation we find Jeremiah in. He's trying his best to reach the people with what they need. And they would rather hear the false prophets who are speaking exaggerated, limited truth to them. It's all not going to happen in the future. So live for the now. Everybody, 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 make your home here. That's why we're going to rob from the poor and make the rich richer. And that's why the whole system crumbled in Jerusalem. And then the other people, the escapists, and they're like, oh, this is all horrible. It's all there, 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 there. God's going to deliver us in two years. And them too. And Jeremiah comes in the middle. So that's the setting. That's the context. His right words at the right time is to come and mend a divided nation and stand in the middle and say, they're both right. God is calling us to make our homes. And he is telling us that there is a better hope. So the home and the hope, the the present and the future, they're both true, but they need to strike a balance and, you, and the people need to live in both, not one versus the other. So that's where his letter comes in. In chapter 29, he writes this letter to encourage the exiles. Don't choose sides. There, there are different prophets that are mentioned in this letter. And he says, don't choose sides. Find the middle Find the balanced truth, the balanced message. And so he tells them to do this. Verse 5, he sides with hedonism. He says, make your home here. Pretend almost, pretend like there is no future. In verse 10, he sides with escapism. And he says, God is going to deliver you from this mess. There is a future, and it's better than what you're living in now. He sides with both. So listen, listen how he does this. It's, it's not home or hope. It's home and hope, both of them. So verse 5, make your home. Um, he says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Do not check out of their culture. Do, just because you're in Babylon and it's not the promised land, it's not the place you want to be, don't check out. Make this home. And he continues in verse 7. It says, seek the welfare or peace, I think, in the New King James. Seek the shalom in the Hebrew. Seek the, ho- the <laughs> seek the shalom of Babylon. For in their shalom, you will find your shalom. So, go to Babylon and be present Don't live for the present like hedonism does. Live in the present. And then he tells the escapists, well, that was the message to the escapists. (laughs) It's going to be 70 years, not two years. You're not going to just get taken out of there tomorrow. Make it your home. 
Um, so don't plan on escaping. Don't, don't hold hope only. You need to make your home. Verse 10, now he reverses it. And he says, okay, but don't make Babylon your permanent home because there's a future and hope, right? So that's 29.10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and I'll fulfill my promise and I will bring you back to this place for I know the plans that I have for you. It's not just guesswork. I, I see this ahead. I, I know what's going to happen. You're there for 70 years and I will bring you back, uh, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom and not for evil to give you a future and hope. And then he says, you know, you will call upon me. You will seek me and find me. We search for me with all your heart and I will restore you. I will bring you back. This is very important. Jeremiah doesn't just tell the escapists to make their home there and stop. He doesn't just tell the hedonists there is a future and a hope and just say that and stop. He reaches out to both. He understands the times and he's calling them to understand not to limit. It's just about hope or it's just about making our home here. It's about both bring it together and be balanced. So in some, what do you do with the future and the present? Hedonism wants to live for the present, but Jeremiah is saying live in the present. Escapists want to live in the future but he's telling them to live for the future. You see it? It's not become so obsessed with the present that there is no future, but it's to have the proper balance. Live in the present and for the future so that you never leave the present in your yearning for the future. But escapists will leave the present and live in the future. And hedonists will just forget the future and live for the present. But it's the right balance in the future, excuse me, in the present and for the future. That's what Jeremiah is calling them to in the present, build homes, learn the recipes of the Babylonians, know their music, know your neighbor, get to know people. Don't sit there and be exclusive and be like, well, we're going to get out of here two years. Hananiah said so. And so we're just going to be indifferent and two years go by and they're still indifferent and, and they're just sitting there and they're wasting away. And God's saying, there's an opportunity here for you to bring Shalom to the city. I am pretty much forcing my people to become missionaries to Babylon. That's what the exile is doing. I'm not asking you in your pain to check out and say, well, there's a future and a hope. And we're just going to hold on to that. And we'll just kind of, you know, don't worry about school. Don't worry about your work. Don't worry about anything. Just be indifferent about what these people are doing here. And he says, no. Have families. Join the bunko club. I don't know. Make music. Involve yourself. Participate. Invest in Babylon. To the point he says, pray for Babylon. Their enemy. How easy it is for them to just grumble and drag their feet in there. But then we see Daniel. A guy, we know he read Jeremiah's letter. Because he says he read Jeremiah in his own book. I think Daniel took this to heart and he made a difference in Babylon. 
He was willing to call it home. He didn't sit with his hands folded in the dark corner and say, this isn't my home. I'm just waiting to go home. He made Babylon home. But not to the exclusion that there's still a future and a hope. See, what Jeremiah is calling them to do is make your location your home away from home. Hope. It's the continual looking forward to your homecoming. And he says that to them. There's going to be a homecoming. So don't forget that hope, but make yourself at home until that hope arrives. And while you make yourself at home, the way that you don't assimilate into your culture and the way that you don't become a Babylonian, because obviously that's what you're afraid of, they're afraid of, is to keep hope in your eyes while you're in the present, in the present living for the future, right? That hope, so you're in the present, you're making a home, but your eye is continually looking, continually grasping for what's to come, the promised homecoming, so that you can make a home and you can make an impact and you can be involved with the culture and the nation around you and you can pray for their welfare and you can get to know your neighbors and you can contribute to their society for the good while not becoming part of it because your eye is on the home coming and you're remembering that this is home away from home c.s lewis said that when a person does this when he remembers his home his true home that he should become a blessing to the people around him that he should bring shalom welfare peace prosperity to the nation that he's in and i don't mean a financial prosperity but a um you know, <laughs> this is what C.S. Lewis says. This is in Mere Christianity, his chapter on hope. He says, hope is one of the theological virtues. By th- uh, this means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some people would think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. So he's meant to look forward without escaping. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all of them left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven, their hope. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. So that's why Jeremiah has to carefully craft a two-fold letter to the exiles, siding with both of the false prophets and saying, they're not exactly wrong. They have all extrematized, I made that word up, I think, extrematized their views to the exclusion and limitation of the other views. 
And so Jeremiah comes and says, this is what it looks like. It's not home versus hope. It's home and hope. And then a proper view of hope will bring a proper home to your culture. So I drink this tea, a green tea called a gunpowder tea. And what gunpowder tea is, is it's, it's the green tea leaves and they roll them up finely so that they look like a bunch of little gunpowder balls. Um, so that when it's in the tin can, it looks like gunpowder. That's why they call it gunpowder tea. And when you put gunpowder tea, when you pour the hot water over it, it's really fun. Um, the little balls of green tea unravel themselves and co- become this whole big leaf inside of the teapot. And I like it. I, I, it's so much fun. It's, it's this thing that, that's all wrapped up into itself. And the minute it gets in hot water, it opens up and it expands. And I think that Jeremiah would, that what this letter is saying is that we in Israel, us, we're to be gunpowder tea. We're not to be all wrapped, like tightly wrapped up about everything and into ourselves and closed off to everything and just hard little useless leaves and trying to survive and don't touch me and keep, we're going to keep to ourselves. And, but God throws them in hot water. And they're forced to expand outward. They're forced to unravel. And I think that that's what this letter tells us to be. And you and I, we might find ourselves in hot water often. There's a lot of times where I am somewhere or I'm with someone that I don't want to be. And that is exactly what the exile is to the individuals who are in it. I am where I don't want to be. I am with pagan Babylonians, people I don't want to be with. My youth pastor used to tell me over and over, your ministry is wherever you are and whoever you are with. Let the hot water, your exile, unravel you. And when you do so, the water becomes, it's brewed, it's steeped. And it is as those leaves unravel themselves that the water, the leaf is, the leaf is giving of itself to the water. So that the water is now changed. It's no longer bland hot water, but it is excellent high in antioxidants and health benefits, green tea. I'm not being paid to say this. <laughs> <laughs> you see, though, you see, as those tea leaves do their job in the hot water, they are bringing welfare to its environment. And, oh, it might have been happy on the bush once upon a time. And then the tea farmers came and plucked it, took it away from its home, rolled it up and lightly roasted it and threw it in a tin can and it was shipped. Who knows how far that particular tea came from England. Well, actually it grew in China, went to England where they made it and then it came to U.S. So it's been around the world. It's, it's definitely an exile. <laughs> but by letting go of self and realizing that 
this is my new home. It's bringing welfare to me. And this is what Jeremiah is calling them to do. Don't go to Babylon with Hananiah's words in your ear. It's only going to be two years. So just kind of sit back and wait for it to happen. Don't listen to him. It's going to be 70. So you might as well go to school and educate and, you know, be part of the Babylonian structure. But don't become so part of it that you forget that God still loves you and he's coming back for you. Um, So wherever we are, whoever we're with, I think of Jesus who, you know, historians, even secular say, there's no doubt that the man changed the whole world. Um, But what I think about is he actually didn't contact the whole world. He was in a very insignificant part of the Roman Empire. And he basically hung out with 12 people all the time. Where you are who you're with. And he ended up influencing the world. It starts with those little things. It starts with realizing that we have to stop complaining about our situation or our pain. And we have to stop either choosing the false prophets of hedonism or the false prophets of escapism and realize that we're to be in the present living for the future not in the future, or not for the present. In the present, for the future. Hope and home, perfectly balanced. And then maybe wherever we are, whoever we're with, we will begin to bring welfare to them. We can let our problems and our pain become distractions. We can let our yearnings to be with someone else or to be somewhere else distract us. And what we need to do is realize that that's not going to change anything. What actually happened when Israel went into exile was they got it. They found their identity. They understood finally who they're supposed to be. And it was in the exile that they began to study the law of Moses and the rest of their scriptures. And they began to officiate it. And the synagogues were started. Scribes began. Uh, were formed during the exile. This whole new phase of the Jews began there. They found themselves and they became so obsessed with keeping God's law, as you know, when Jesus came into the scene, they were maybe a little too rigid. But that's all because the exile taught them we need to reorient ourselves to recollect ourselves. And sometimes when we are looking at the wrong idea, and you know, we're, we're either living in hedonism or escapism, our, what's happening is that our minds are being scattered like a rock thrown into a flock of birds. And we're chasing after all these possibilities and all these what ifs. And God is saying, well, we'll, we'll bring it all back together. Recollection, Right? It's, it's about the present. Find who you are with and where you are and seek the welfare there. Be usable there. Be gunpowder tea there. And don't lose hope while you're doing that. Remember that God has plans for his people. So we will find who we really are 
when we are most stripped away, right? When we're in those times of pain or frustration, the dislocation, that disorientation, it's there that we're, whoa, and then we see God. And when we take 29 verse 13 to heart, it's there that we need to seek him with all of our heart and there that we'll find him and we will be recollected and reoriented and we'll finally under, we'll understand more deeply who we are and why we're here and what God is calling us to do to, to, to seek the welfare of our culture around us. So, true prosperity is not... Sit tight, God's got great bucks coming for you, future and a hope, and, you know, a constant smile on your face, and no pain, a bed of roses... You'll never regret your decision to follow Christ. Everyone will love you. I don't know. The list can go on and on, the different versions of that kind of gospel that are out there. The, the true prosperity of the true gospel is not an introverted prosperity. It's not an incoming prosperity. It's an extroverted, it's an outgoing prosperity. It's seeking the welfare, the prosperity, the betterment of those around us. That is the prosperity that the gospel should bring to people and places. Yes, the gospel's prosperous, but it's not so that I can drive a certain car. It's so that other people who have no hope can find hope. Other people who are seeking to escape reality can find home in the present. That is the prosperity the gospel is meant to bring. And it starts with me when I can recollect and I can understand that God is the one that I am to seek forth my whole heart. And so that is the shalom. And we're called to be shalom creators. Uh, shalom, that is translated peace in your New King James. It's translated uh, welfare here in the ESV. It, it literally, in the Hebrew, it just, it's the idea of wholeness. And if I'm a scattered person living for things other than my home and hope, um, I'm not going to be whole and I can't make people whole around me. So God's calling us to be shalom creators. That is the true prosperity. The true prosperity of the gospel. It's bringing that kind of wholeness to people, to places, and to the present. So let, let's not get extreme and limit other, all this like, just so narrow-minded on one little single part of truth that we limit everything else. And we're like, yeah, you got to make your home here or you got to forget the home and just all about the hope. It's as Jeremiah stands in the gap and takes a lot of hits for us. He says, it's, it's all together. It's all to, we have to make home because that's the way that we, the gospel will bless the people around us, but we can't lose sight of the fact that we have a real homecoming coming. It's our hope. And so as we keep our mind and our eyes on the hope, we'll be most effective to make home here and bless and bring welfare and true prosperity to those that need it most. So I invite you to um, side with Jeremiah here. Not on either end of the extreme. Not I'm, a, I'm all for the present or I'm all for the future, but I'm all for both. I live in the present 
And in the present, I'm living for the future. Not in the future, but for the future. Not for the present, but in the present. So I invite us to heed Jeremiah's words. Home and hope. Not either or. Both and. Father, thank you for not forgetting us. We feel estranged from our true home. We feel like exiles in this world. And you remind us that we feel that way because it's true. You have a real home for us. It's a real hope for us. God, help us not to escape reality and wish that that hope was here right now. Help us to look at where we're at and who we're with, to look at our exile, and Lord, to make true peace come to that. Help us, Father, to live in the present. Um, We ask for your grace to give us patience and to give us a heart that doesn't seek inward but seeks outward for the Babylonians around us. We seek you with our whole heart tonight. Make these things clear. We pray in your son's name. Amen.